Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Tim Sadler, co-founder and CEO of Tessian, which is a venture-backed cybersecurity company that stops threats, not business, by securing the human layer. Tim started the company in 2013 after a career in HSBC's global banking division and has since grown the company to over 140 employees in the U.S. and U.K., since founding, Tessian has secured $60 million in funding from investors such as Sequoia, Balderton, and Axel, and has won numerous awards, including Best Security Startup by Wired and Best Machine Learning Startup by Legal Geek. So I'm very thrilled to have Tim on the show, and uh, welcome, Tim. It's great to be here. I always like to start off understanding your background and what got you into starting Tessia. You have a very um, interesting background. You are a financial analyst at HSBC, and then you have a degree in mechanical engineering, and then you're also an investor in several startups. So how did you go from that to taking the leap into entrepreneurship? Yeah. So the answer is that I guess there's an order to all of this. When I was a kid, I was always really interested in technology, but specifically how how um, technology could be used to make people's lives better, or you could um, create something that would somehow change the world, I guess. And I went to university and I studied engineering. And then when I graduated, the thing that I felt that I sort of always had that itch or that urge to do something where I would, you know, maybe one day start a company. But the thing with a lot of engineers is that you're missing that kind of that business acumen or, you know, how do you raise money for something or how do you, you know, navigate your way around a PL or a balance sheet? So I went to work in finance at HSBC in their global banking division. And that was kind of a, a great experience that really taught me the fundamentals, all the business side of things, really. But it was also the place where I started to understand more about how enterprises actually manage security certainly from an end user employee perspective as well. And just the kind of confidentiality of data that's handled and, and shared. And um, so along with my co-founders, Tom and Ed, who had very similar backgrounds, they, we met at university, they were also engineers, but they also began their career in banking as well. And we'd kind of all found this, this, this problem together at all of the companies we worked at, securing people and the data that they share was just this common thread and gave us the idea to start testing. I know that you don't have a background in security. Was that a problem that you had to overcome in some way? Because security is such a niche field where the people have such a deep knowledge on all these terminology, the security stack, etc. How did you overcome that handicap in the beginning or even later on? Yeah, it's a great question. I think about it like it was a blessing and a curse. So as you say, it's it's difficult, I think, just in any field when you're trying to break into it with no prior experience or network. And you're completely right that it's tough in security. But we were, you know, we were 24 years old and we had you know, limited experience in anything. We were kind of first-time founders, first-time anything. And you're right, it makes it that bit harder. You just have to hustle really hard. But the reason why I think it was a blessing is because we were so... I'm trying to look for a better word, but we were so naive in some ways that we just had no preconceptions. We had no... Our minds were not set in any way. Everything looked like an opportunity. We were really curious. We, we would just ask questions all the time. Well, why isn't this a thing? Why can't this be done this way? And I speak now to a lot of people in, you know, who've had careers in security 20 plus years. And they often comment, you know, this is a problem that was hiding in plain sight just because nobody had thought to approach it in this way before. So I think it had its benefits as well. Interesting. Yeah, I can see that. Like you bought a fresh perspective and probably looked at it from a different angle than if you were steeped in security, you probably came with a preconceived notion of what can and cannot be done. I can see that. Okay. Yeah. Actually, this is something that I was going to ask maybe later on, but I just feel like it's a good segue into what we're talking about. Starting a company at 24 and then growing it to 140 it must be quite a journey because my last podcast was on leadership. I'm curious to hear 
how has your style of leadership at Tessian changed from when you were just a few employees to, to where you are now? Have you yourself had to change in that journey in how you have become a leader? Yeah. Um, and it's been, it's been an amazing journey. And as you say, things change quite significantly. And I think the biggest shift is that when you start off and you're, you're a set of founders, you know, three people, really the work you're doing centers around building and designing product and then selling that product. And then you maybe scale to 10 people, but everything really requires the founding team, you know, founding team do everything. You are responsible for every single piece of the business and you're involved in, in a lot of it. It could be even setting up the HR system or doing the month end reports for finance. Like some, somewhere a founder is looking after that, I think is the company scales. and, And the biggest thing that I've learned is that the role of the founder then becomes to hire a great set of leaders underneath them for the rest of the company and then empowering them to go and lead their individual teams or their individual departments with their own OKRs. And we've really been on a journey with that at and I think we've done it, we've done it really well. But you're right, the there's a new muscle, certainly for first-time founders. You have to get very comfortable with stepping away from actually being the practitioner and writing code and you know actually closing the customers yourself and actually hiring a team or hiring a leader who can hire a team. I can see that. Okay. Given the shift of employees from now workplaces to remote, I imagine that there's so much more of a focus on security and ensuring people are not only protected, but can continue to collaborate even more. So something like Tessian, and you can obviously give me an overview of what Tessian does, but it sounds like it would be so valuable in this new environment that we're operating in. So first, maybe you can give me a little overview on what Tessian does, talk about how it's being applied in this new remote-only workplace. And then after, maybe you could touch a little bit about what are your customers most worried about from a security standpoint? I'm just taking some notes. So what I'd start with is by just giving um, a bit of the background on Tessian. So the opportunity that we saw and, and the problem that we saw when we started our careers in finance was organizations often, or certainly at the time, were thinking about security from a machine layer perspective. So you would buy a firewall to secure the network of the organization. You would buy an EDR platform to secure the endpoints and devices within the organization. But when it came to people, all of the companies that we were working for would have to rely on classroom training or policies, procedures, those kinds of things to secure people and the information they share and the systems that they use. So we've been through this huge transformation over the past 30, 40 years, this digital transformation where we've digitized more and more in the enterprise. And essentially, we've given more and more access to data and to these systems. We put all of this in the hands of our employees. And now we need to provide a security layer for that. So we need to actually help our people be secure when they're sharing data, be secure when they're using these systems. And what we're doing at Tessian is we're building an advanced technology platform to automatically secure people in the interactions that they make in the systems they use at work. And the system we've decided to focus on first is email, because this is where people spend 40% of their time at work. And it's also where the majority of these human layer as security breaches originate. So that's what we mean by human layer security. And that's what we're building at Tessian. And very specifically today, the problems that we solve for our customers are we help them automatically prevent accidental data loss through misdirected email communications. We help them prevent data exfiltration on email. And we help them defend against highly advanced forms of impersonation on email. And if I then go to this new world we find ourselves in today, you're right, everything changed about a year ago where companies went from having one or two offices around the world to having as many offices as you have employees, right? And the office is suddenly everyone's front room or kitchen table or whatever else it is. And I think 
there's a number of things here that are problematic. But the first thing is that that organizations do not have any sense of visibility into human layer security today. So there is there is no way to understand across all of the key facets of human layer security how secure is person A compared to person B. Everyone has their own security characteristics. Someone might be very, very careful. Someone might be more careless when they share information. Somebody may have a position in the organization which makes them a bigger target for hackers trying to break into the organization, so on and so forth. So I think... One of the biggest challenges is that organizations today really struggle to defend what they can't see. And at the moment, there is a limited visibility there. But of course, Tessian helps companies gain that visibility into their human layer. And then the second thing is more specific, but it pertains to this particular security threat of email phishing or business email compromise. And this is a a huge, huge issue where attackers are are targeting organizations through their employees. So when I describe to when I describe to my family and my parents what I do, they think about a hacker kind of breaking into a computer, right? You know, someone right. like madly bashing away at a keyboard with green numbers going up on the screen. But actually how it often happens is that you will trick somebody into doing something. It could be you send a the attacker sends an email that is impersonating a trusted third party, but it's actually leading them to a uh, fake website or mm-hmm. it's requesting them to pay a fake invoice, those kinds of things. And this is a huge, huge problem because people can be easily tricked and it's really easy to impersonate somebody on email. Um, mm-hmm. So I'd say that is a core concern right now. And then just to go one layer deeper, the reason why this is a specific concern now because of the way the world's changed is because if you imagine if you're working in an office and you work in a team of people, you're in the finance team and you receive an email and it says, you know, hi, this invoice is really urgent. Please could you pay it immediately from your CEO? And you look at it and you say, okay, well, this kind of looks, I don't know. I, I hadn't heard about this. I didn't know it was coming. When you're all in the same office or you're all in the same building or you're all in the same you know, location, you can go and verify that request in person with someone. You can look over and say, okay, I can see the CEO is over there in that meeting. How did he just send me this email? But when everybody's remote, you have, you have to place greater trust in systems like email. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do that when attackers are leveraging those systems for fraudulent behavior and also to try and break into systems. So I was briefly working in a security company before, and I feel like a lot of these problems, especially phishing, is something that's so well known. And there's so many people trying to solve that problem. First of all, email security companies, right? You have the semantics of the world that that have solutions for this. I know that companies are attacking it from also the mobile perspective, and they're looking at you know, things like when a certain domain was created, where it was created and verifying it and saying this domain looks fishy, don't click on it. So I feel like email security and phishing are problems that are well known and existed and and are being attacked by different security companies, either from the endpoint perspective or from mobile perspective. So I'm curious to understand how Tessian fits into that ecosystem. Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right. You know, there are so many vendors and so many different software solutions within security. The problem of phishing and business email compromise is a really, really complex one. And it's often underestimated by, unfortunately, a lot of other vendors and a lot of companies who are trying to solve this problem. <clears throat> and the today's threats require a deep understanding of the relationships that an organization has from an email perspective and also a deep understanding of the kind of content that you would normally share and then content that may look like an anomaly or a a relationship that might look like an anomaly. And in short, Tessian, we're using machine learning models and natural language processing and those kinds of advanced technologies to actually solve this problem from first principle. And legacy approaches to solving the problem of phishing 
have really been derived from spam filters where you would have some kind of allow or deny list where you would maintain a a bad list of domains or a bad list of URLs. Well, increasingly now, emails might not contain a URL. They might not contain any payload. And uh, you actually need to start understanding the textual content of the email. You need to understand the relationship behind the email. And I'll give you another example. There are an overwhelming amount of email attacks and phishing that now happens where the email is sent from the legitimate email account. So you think about that, for example, you work in a company, you work in the finance team, and you interact with you know, abclawyers.com, and somebody at abclawyers.com actually has their account hacked. And the attacker is controlling that account and sending emails from at abclawyers.com. That is really, really common. Now, you have, to, you have to go really, really deep on your inspection of every email to say, okay, well, actually, we verified this is the legitimate email account, but it's being controlled by an illegitimate sender. Right. So there's some of the things that Tessian has to do and you know, how deep we have to go with our technology. And machine learning, and, and as we call it, stateful machine learning, is that, is that core that allows us to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I remember I had an interview actually with someone from a financial institution in my previous role. And they said that their biggest threat was inside our track, like people inside doing things either by mistake or actually maliciously attacking and taking information away. So it sounds like where Tessian is really operating is really trying to use machine learning to understand the usual behaviors of the employees and then finding anomalies. Am I correct? That's completely correct. So we think about it as we build machine learning models to automatically identify security threats caused by human error. And there are three core pillars of human error. People making mistakes, so inadvertently. People breaking the rules intentionally. And then people being tricked or people being hacked. And our solutions today cover each of those different areas of human error. But as you say, the employees in the organization, often who are just trying to do their jobs, just trying to do the right thing, still can make mistakes, still can be tricked or hacked. And then, of course, there are those scenarios where people can break the rules and and do bad things. So you've used this term human security layer a couple of times. Do you see this human security layer as a new category? I think Tessian was called check recipient before. I'm moving a little bit now into your go-to-market strategy, but I'm really interested in understanding how you came up with this human security layer. And if you see that as a new category and what was the process of creating this, this, this category? Yeah. Human layer security is a new category. And it's a category that that we created at Tessian to encompass the, really to articulate and describe the particular problem set that we're, that we're solving. And I think like all great companies, the, you know, truly enduring companies, the ones that really change the world are, you don't just do something better. You do something completely different to what came before. And Human layer security, as I mentioned, describes securing human digital interaction in the enterprise. So every time an employee interacts with a system at work, there is a propensity for human error. And we want to take that problem away. So we think every organization in in the future will have some kind of human layer security platform that is securing their people in the way that a firewall is securing their network, an EDR platform is securing their devices and endpoints, and a human layer security platform is securing their people. I think in terms of the creative process, it's always, there are a few things to consider, but whatever category you're trying to create has to be, it's got to be simple enough that people can understand what it is. It needs to be novel. And then it also needs to allow you to scale into solving that problem over time. What I mean by that is what you do today may be a subset of the overall problem, but you can see a clear path for how you get there. And I think 
with any kind of successful category creation, what companies need to do is they need to take their uh, stakeholders, so their customers, their employees, they need to take analysts on that journey from, okay, here's where we are today. Here's where we're going tomorrow. And then in five years time, here's where we're, here's where we're going to be. Here's where we're going to end up. And uh, that's something that we've been working on for years now. And we continue to work on as we try and get the whole world nodding and saying, yes, we, you know, we understand human layer security. That's what we want to call it. And, and, and we're buying into that vision. The other day I was, I was with a customer who, you know, showed us a overview of their, they were giving us an overview of their infrastructure. And I should say they're not a customer yet, but they're a potential customer. They showed us an overview of their infrastructure and there was a, there was a, a pillar of their infrastructure and it was called human layer security. I thought, that is amazing. That's great. That's great to see. You're not using our product yet, but you are talking in our terms, in our language. So yeah, we're, we're that is phenomenal so because I know how hard marketing in the security category is. So what do you think you guys did right to start having the industry now be saying and talking about the human security layer? Is it just a question of beating at it consistently time and time again, and then it just flips at some point? Or could you look back at that journey of creating this category? What do you think was the tipping point that made this happen? I definitely think that's a large part of it. You have to pick something and you just have to go for it. And you need to talk about it a lot and you need to really reinforce it. And we, you know, our our teams have done amazing work on this over the past year. Last year, we launched the world's first human layer security summit. We've been doing that now, I think every quarter. And we have a, a great human layer security summit upcoming in the first quarter of this year as well. Things like that really help. But the other thing, and I think it's so important, is that human layer security is a category and a framework for articulating, I think, what so many people in security have been thinking for so long, but just couldn't quite find the words for it, couldn't quite find the terminology, couldn't quite find the way to say, ah, yeah, I, I can put my finger on it, that's it. And I think when we bring human layer security forward to customers and forward to those stakeholders, what we often hear is, yes, this is what I've been telling. This is what I've been telling my team for years. This is what I've been thinking for decades. And again, it's, it's shaped by many, many things. But I think when you can actually provide the, the language, the framework, the, you can provide that way of um, articulating a very, very common problem that has previously just existed in people's minds. It's a, it's an incredibly powerful thing. You absolutely nailed it. I think the key to category creation is not about saying what your product does and how it's different and unique, but basically what you've been able to do is put a label to something that has been on the customer's mind that they can now rally towards. Keeping with the theme of marketing, one of the things that It's probably hard in any field, but I feel especially hard in security is the ability to constantly differentiate yourself in the marketplace. Because you came up with this, great, but I can see two months later, all your competitors talking about human layer security and saying they have it. They can all say that they can help a company red flag an anomaly where someone just logged in from New York and then logged in from China. There's an anomaly there and their system does it. And that's human layer security, right? So how do you continue to differentiate yourself in the marketplace when things can be so quickly copied? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And in many ways, words are cheap. So it's really important, I think, that the category that the company is defining and and going after and trying to become the leaders of that category in, it has to exist at every layer of the organization. And a really key piece of that is actually a Tessian. We have to say human layer security. We have to present human layer security. And our product needs to practice human layer security. Mm-hmm. And that kind of product piece uh, is so critical. So... We distill like what is a human layer security platform at Tessian. We say a human layer security platform is a platform that can provide you visibility into your human layer security risk. It can automatically remediate human layer security threats. 
and it can provide notifications and alerts to employees in the moment to nudge them and change their behavior so that they can adopt better security behavior. So it's one, two, three. And so it's coming up with the framework, it's coming up with a category, but then it's then actually practicing that in your product and at every layer through your organization. And actually, even for, for Tessian, one of our company values is this value we call human first. Hmm. So we are a company designing a security platform that is protecting people. And we therefore need to think with a human first approach to how we design our products and also how we work with our customers and how we support them. Often security teams are dealing with a lot of high stress and difficult circumstances, so on and so forth. So the point I'm trying to make is that human-laced security isn't just a category, it isn't just a badge that we kind of slap onto the side of the company. It's actually something that guides the values, the principles, the product, every single layer of that organization is driven around that category, that, that, that mission. Well, actually, there, there, there it is, right? It is, our, it is our company mission. Our mission is to secure the human layer. And the reason why we do what we do is because we, we absolutely believe that people should not have to be security experts to use a computer. And we are there providing that layer of technology so that companies can achieve their mission and ask their people to do their best work without having security get in the way. Um, what does Tezian stand for? Is it just a name you came up with? It's just a name we came up with. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we had a few, we, we really wanted to, we wanted to have a company name that didn't mean anything so that we could ascribe our own meaning to it. So if you go on to Google and you type Tessian, or, you know, we were thinking of words where you would type something and they would just be kind of nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing exists. And then we had a number of other requirements for what our name should be. Um, and one of the important things for any startup it should be is that the domain name costs you 99 cents. <laughs> but I, I kid, that was more like the everything else aligned. And then we found out that the domain name was available and it's 99 cents. No, the, for us, we just, we just love the word and we love that it didn't mean anything before we actually imprinted our vision and our company onto it. So it was like a blank canvas. We loved that it sounded, you know, it sounded mathematical. It sounded uh, like a technology company would. It was easily pronounceable you could interpret it like nine times out of 10 people can hear the name and they can write yeah. down the name correctly. Those kinds of things. Like the aesthetic of the word was really important. And uh, we just thought it was a really, really great canvas for us to, you know, put our identity as a company onto that. Did you get a branding company to help you come up with, with the positioning, the branding, et cetera? Or was it just something you as the founders came up with? We, we did. And uh, they... They produced our amazing, amazing logo and identity and all of that. And initially, we were going to ask them to come up with a name as well. And I'm really glad that we found the name ourselves. And I'm really okay. glad that we did because I think, I just think it's a really, I think it's a really special thing. I think it's a really powerful thing when, and by the way, it wasn't just the founders. It was a group of our early employees. Like we all got together in a room, brainstorming, throwing ideas out. It was just amazing that we could all come up with something through creative process that that is so so now important it's the core of our company so you use the word platform when you were talking about what you do and what you're building at Tessian and i think that's an interesting choice of words because one of the other things that i used to hear a lot about when we talk to cso's and cios is you know every vendor is talking about all the things that they do and what the companies are really struggling with when it comes to security is how to simplify the security stack, right? There's a trend towards more and more companies, whether it's Microsoft or Symantec, trying to bundle and have all the different security aspects in their offering. I remember this one company actually told me, it's a financial services company. They said, we have a KPI that when we take on a vendor, that product has to replace two or three other products. So when you go out and sell your human security layer, how do you 
address that because there's so many people providing different aspects of that security stack and making it more and more complicated for the security teams. Yeah, I, I think it's what you said, which is that any security buyer or IT buyer is looking to they're looking to buy products that solve today's pain points, possibly help them replace other initiatives or other products. It doesn't always have to be products. It could be processes or it could be something else. But then how does that purchase expand over time for them? You know, what role does this product play in a year's time, in two years' time? And today at Tessian, you know, we do many different things for our customers. It's not just a point solution. I think that's really important. In many ways, when you're starting a company, you kind of want to be a point solution or you want to be just a feature because you've got to break through the noise somehow and you want it to kind of be the lightest thing possible to, to yeah. initially land. But I think we've done this really well where you can buy Tessian to solve your problem of misdirected emails. You can solve the problem of data exfiltration. You can solve the problem of business email compromise and account takeover. You can solve all three of those things. Whatever the journey is that you, you want to go on with Tessian, it is a journey and it is an expansion over time of your consumption of, of the product. And I don't mean that from a sales perspective. It's obviously good for us as a company, but I think it's critically important when you're trying to work with enterprises, you've got to be telling them the story about how this actually becomes a core piece of their infrastructure and over time will, will help them replace more and more of their legacy stack versus just being this point solution and actually going to have to kind of add this other thing in to secure this other piece of your infrastructure so, or this other piece of your human layer, so on and so forth. But it is also a journey. No company can take on the whole thing right at the beginning. It's just that roadmap that you build and we build our roadmap with our customers. So they're telling us, okay, well, actually, here's where we'd like you to expand next and this is what you should do, so on and so forth. I'm going to talk about customer acquisition. What was your main acquisition channel in the beginning prior to getting your Series A? And how has that changed over time? What have you found as the best acquisition channels today post-Series A in your growth mode? Yeah. Um, so when we started, it was pretty simple. We were, well, I say we, I was just reaching out to a lot of security professionals and people who worked in that part of the organization, sending an email, dropping them a call, that kind of thing, to try and set up a meeting and show them what we were building. And then if they liked that, we would run a, a proof of value, a proof of concept, and then try and convert them into a customer. And um, that worked really well. It still works well today. And it's how a lot of enterprise software companies go to market. It's You just have to knock on lots of doors and have lots of conversations. I think the biggest shift for us pre and post series A was the introduction of demand generation and marketing. How do you bake in higher leverage sources of leads? What I mean by that is it's pretty low leverage to have like you can hire sales reps and they can individually reach out to a set number of companies, so on and so forth. But actually, if you build a great marketing team and you build a brand and you you start to you start to do things like, well, let's take the podcast, for example, that we were speaking about. You can then start attracting much larger audiences of people who can then learn about your products and then maybe visit your website and they don't convert on the first visit, but they do on the 10th and that kind of thing. So that's been the biggest shift for us, which is actually focusing on demand generation and also the role of Marcoms and brand and share of voice and those kinds of things. And then what we're working on at the moment is then how we bring in you know other sources of um, leads to our to our business through things like partnerships and technology alliances and those kinds of things. That's the next step uh, for us. And which of these channels that you've talked about, like when you talk about demand generation, there's so many different channels. What do you feel what has worked well for you in demand generation? I think it all centers around the content that you can produce. In many ways, it's kind of like a... I want to use the word discussion, but it's kind of like a one-way discussion with the with the customer. But it 
we found great success with writing about and doing research on things that people or our prospective customers find interesting or will find interesting because they might learn about Tessie and directly, you know, they might see an advert for our website and click on it, but they might also read a, they might read an article in the Wall Street Journal and see us referenced and say, okay, that kind of sounds interesting. And then it leads them to a research report on the psychology of human error. And then it leads them to the way, you know, to the website and so on and so forth. But I think being able to engage with customers through great content is is extremely important and something that we're something we're doubling down on in in 2021 as well. I see. So okay, you've acquired your customers. You talked about a POC as something that you do. Talk to me a little bit about how you determined pricing, especially when it comes to a new category that you're creating. How did you go about figuring out what's the right price? I think it is possibly as simple as trial and error. In the early days, you really don't have much to go on other than what do existing solutions that could be deemed similar to what we do cost? And then, you know, what is the cost of what's the underlying cost of actually providing our service? And, you know, by the way, a lot of people believe that software is free, you know, and doesn't cost anything. When you're doing anything with machine learning and analyzing very large data sets, there is a there is a very significant cost to that. So right. you have to look at obviously covering your costs at a minimum. You have to make sure that you don't have that kind of sticker shock of, you know, you're a thousand times more expensive than other solutions that could be compared to, to what you're doing, even if it is groundbreaking, even if it is novel. And then I think you just kind of triangulate the third point, which is, and what is a fair demonstration of value to the customer? And we're really lucky in the sense that we can actually determine that because we actually prevent data breaches for our customers. So we're not security analytics. We don't tell the security team, by the way, yesterday, these hundred bad things happened. You should go and look at them. But by the way, they've already happened. And and it's crazy how how many pieces of security software are actually just that. We are in line and we're saying we're going to we're going to analyze everything coming into the email network everything leaving the email network in line and actually stop that thing from reaching the person or being sent out if we think there's something that looks like a security threat so we can actually measure the breach preventions and then you can work out okay well what is the cost per breach prevention and does that feel like value or a good mm-hmm. value or not and so that's one of the other ways that we think about it well, that sounds very quantifiable, I guess, for, for the organization yeah. so that they can nod to the value that they're getting. ROI um, is a huge component of what we do. It's kind of how we think about yeah, justifying our purchase, our renewal. It's You have to be able to show the customer in real terms using your product, what have they been able to achieve this year, this quarter. And it's something that's been baked in from the beginning at Tessian, but we, like I said, we are providing them with analytics dashboards reports to say, we stopped these bad things from happening. And that is our, that is our value back to the customer. So if you look at back at your journey and how you commercialize, so once the product was built, how you took it to market, et cetera, tell me about a time when things didn't go well, like what, what didn't go well and how did you handle it? And what did you learn from it? <clears throat> That's a good question. I mean, there have been many things. I'm thinking, <laughs> thinking of the best thing to share uh, on this podcast with your audience. I think it's just the constant cycle of... There are some things where you just have constant trial and error. One of the things that we, for a long time, I think underestimated the importance of actually building like a very compelling user interface for our customers. And we had a really sound rationale for like why we shouldn't do that. 
And the reason was that we focused all of our R&D effort into designing and building machine learning models and enhancing the ability of our system to detect threats and prevent those threats. And we would say to ourselves, well, look, our existing customers aren't asking for this great user interface and this kind of really compelling visual experience. And for a couple of years, we kind of continued on and we, we didn't build that. And it was a mistake because what you forget is that the majority of your customers in any high growth company, the majority of your customers are ahead of you. And you've got to solve the customer set that you have today, but you equally need to be thinking about how do you then acquire your next thousand customers? You know, if you have a hundred customers, how do you acquire the next thousand? And how you do that may be fundamentally different to the first hundred. And it was one of those things where we had underweighted the importance and that significance of customers buy with their eyes, mm. you know, even in software, because it's the emotional connection you build with a customer when you get on a demo and you say, here is the product. Mm. And if you say, here is the product through slides, that's somewhat effective. But if you say, here is the product with the actual product that they can see, they can touch, they can feel, it's incredibly powerful. This is the thing. Nothing was disastrously wrong about that, but it led us to like suboptimal outcomes in a number of situations that I just wish hadn't happened. And again, it was a really important learning point for us, which is think about the customers that are ahead of you versus just focusing every decision. Again, it's really important. You do focus on the customers you have, but just don't focus every product decision based on uh, that subset. You need to be thinking about the next cohorts as well. Yeah, there's there's kind of product development and then there's product strategy. And you have to make sure that you have them separate to some extent where the product strategy is kind of the long-term vision of where the product is going versus the product development, which is a, a trade-off and a balance between what your existing customers need, what you need to be competitive and nudging towards the direction in which you want your overall product to go. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to ask a bit about funding. I mean, you have tier one investors in, in Tessian. Can you talk me through how you did funding? Like when did you go, how did you get your seed? Was it just people you knew in the network that believed in what you did? What were some of the things you feel you did right that allowed you to get an Axel or a Balderton or a Sequoia on board? I think, again, it's, it's a blend of lots of different things. And fundamentally, your company has to be good, right? And what I mean by that is you have to have great people who work. The company, your metrics have to be good. Your customers have to be great. Your product has to be great. The problem you're solving needs to have a large TAM, so on and so forth. But I think one thing that we did well was in our, our ability to tell the story and the narrative. And a lot of founders I speak to who are thinking about raising their seed or thinking about raising their series A or, or even B, it's the, there are so many resources online now that can tell you how to put a pitch deck together mm -hmm. and, you know, what slides should show what, and you need to have a slide showing team and so on and so forth. But actually it's what I was saying about customers buy with their eyes and that kind of emotional connection to what you're selling. And the storytelling and the narrative and actually why your company is going to change the world and what you're setting out to do that big vision, I think is super important. And I think mm -hmm. it's particularly important at series A and series B because there's so much competition for attention from VCs, investors, right. from partners. They need to, it's almost like in your pitch. And again, I'm saying if all the other things check out, right? Like great team, great product, great TAM, great metrics. The box you absolutely have to tick is you, you've got to be unique. You've got to be novel. You've got to be exciting. You've got to resonate. You've just got to resonate with the person and the mm -hmm. team that you're pitching. They've got to believe this is going to be the next big thing. Like I believe in the world. I believe in like the next five years, every enterprise is going to be using this product. I believe in this future that they're going to create and they're going to help shape. And I just think it's something that we 
we did really well and we were able to encompass in those pitches talking about here's where we are today, but then here's that, you know, here's how we become the biggest security company in the world. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you would say in terms of how you came up with that story? Was it, again, the founders just getting together and trying to paint this picture? Is there anything in terms of practical advice you can give on how to come up with that story? Yeah, that is a great question. The answer for how we we did it was it, it was myself and one of my co-founders, Ed. Like we would just bounce these ideas and these talk tracks and narratives off each other all the time. And we both love doing that anyway. It's kind of how we think about everything from product strategy to 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 marketing. But I'm trying to think of actionable advice. If you take another product, for example, you think of how you would describe something like Slack or Notion. You wouldn't you wouldn't pitch Slack as it's kind of like email, but it's chat and it or I'm sorry, showing my age now, but do you remember MSN Messenger? It's kind of like MSN Messenger, but for work. Right? There's no way you would pitch that product yeah. like that, right? There's no way you would pitch Notion and say it's kind of like Google Docs, but you can link things deeply in the platform and and also add GIFs and, and stuff like that. I think it's closely linked to that kind of concept of category creation. You've got to articulate what you're building as something that is bigger than the product itself today. What are you building into Slack? You're building the future of enterprise communication. You're building a workspace for teams to connect, collaborate, automate, you know, everything. And it's that kind of spark that really, I think results in really successful funding rounds for companies. I think it's drawing that line because successful funds have seen time and time and time again, companies come in and pitch them that are now going for IPO or going for that massive, you know, whatever that massive event is. And they're saying, I remember five years ago or 10 years ago when they came to pitch us and the idea was like this big. Yeah. Actually, Here's something that I think is actionable, and I've just remembered it. There was a founder, and I can't remember the company, but they wrote a Wikipedia entry for what their company will be at the point of IPO. Or maybe it was they wrote the S1 filing for what their company would file at the IPO. I think it's that. How do you articulate what you will be at scale? And then, of course, you need to have the semblance of how do you actually get there. I love it, Tim. Thank you. That was really nice. We're almost nearing the end of the podcast. Really quickly, a few questions. What are some of your personal goals that you want to accomplish in your journey with Tessie? And I think you've kind of answered this, but anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I I think the first one is just I'm on a continued journey of leadership. And uh, yeah, humbled by so many of the great people that I get to work with at Tessie and, and also people I work with who are linked to our company and will continue to spend an enormous amount of time trying to live up to some of the great leaders that are around me and in my life. And the second thing for 2021 certainly is I want to get better at writing. I want to write more. I think writing has become so important for leaders. I think it's been important for a very long time. (laughs) But if if you didn't believe it was important, I think 2020 and the shift to remote work and the shift to kind of asynchronous work and all of that just completely changed, completely just kind of shifted the landscape for how CEOs, founders, leaders, managers need to communicate with their teams. So they're two things that I'm going to be working on this year. Fantastic. Okay. So we have a quick rapid round of questions that I love to ask my guests at the end. Any book recommendations? It could be fiction or nonfiction books that have impacted you as an, either as an entrepreneur or just as a person that you would like to share. Yeah. I recently found myself going to a book that I read a couple of years ago. It's a book by uh, Timothy Snyder called On Tyranny. It's a pretty deep book recommendation, but it's about how just lessons for society in identifying tyrannical leadership and how things can go bad in societies where there are bad government structures or or organizations. So I think it's, it's really, really important book. It's really important for me. And I think it's important for the times that we live in. 
Absolutely. Sounds very relevant. Like you said, not only for the society we live in, but probably you could take a lot of lessons in the type of company and culture you want to build as well. So lovely. What about your favorite productivity tool? Do you have any tools that you use that you feel help you to be productive? Yeah. Great question. My answer is my notebook and my pen. And I'm just really old school. I I really... The human tool, productivity tool. (laughs) Yeah. I love, I just love like the connection with just writing things down and scribbling. It just helps me generate ideas, but it also helps me cement them. And then I'm trying to be a better, I'm trying to be a better tech CEO by dabbling in notion and getting used to that as well. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that too, but it's just, it's that platform is so deep. I'm kind of scratching the surface at the moment. I set myself some goals for 2021 to uh, start using that more and, and sort of centering more of my uh, personal life and to do's and everything around that. Awesome. Well, it is the European podcast. So question on what's your favorite city in Europe? Oh, that is a good question. I would say unequivocally, my favorite city in Europe, if I can still say this, and I hope I can, is London. And for me, I've known it as a European city for forever, and it it will still remain as a European city in my heart. I love London. I think it's amazing. I think the, yeah, it's a unique city, just so much depth, so much culture, so much going on, and it's so big. So pleased to be back here for a period of time anyway, but it it feels like home. So Tim, I understand you are in the process of starting a podcast as well. I would love to hear a little bit more about it. That's right. Tessian is launching the RE Human Layer Security podcast very, very soon. You can actually go and check it out now wherever you get your podcasts. So it's RE Human Layer Security. And we have some amazing guests. We talk about topics like insider threat to how attackers are hacking humans today to a bunch of other stuff as well. So it's, I highly recommend uh, giving it a listen. Lovely. We'll definitely do that. We'll subscribe to it. Okay. And my last one, favorite quote. It could be your quote or it could be a quote that you, you just like. Yeah, a quote I like <laughs> that I have I've started sharing with a lot of people is it's really simple and I have no idea I have no idea who actually said it first, but it's okay to look back at the past, but just don't stare. And I think that's something I find myself going to quite regularly, which is just, let's take our learnings. That's important to look back, important to reflect, but at the same time, keep your eyes forward. Your actions today can have an impact on that. There's no point in staring back at the past. I love it. Well, on that note, I'm going to end the podcast. Thank you so much, Tim, for being on this show. And I think a lot of insight and valuable lessons for others to listen. So thank you very much. Thanks, Anita. It's been great to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building.